Oh, Nasso. So we have one more week here. Hopefully many more weeks elsewhere. <laughs> and it's probably not too soon to anticipate integration, integration of the practices we've been exploring during these past seven weeks with whatever's to come. And the central theme, it's very explicit in Tibetan Buddhism, more so than any other school of Buddhism I know of, Lo Jong, of mind training. The word Lo actually means attitude. More in this context means attitude, because there's many words for mind. This is Lo rather than Chitta or Sam or what have you. And Jong means to purify, to transform, so it's an attitudinal adjustment. It's shifting our perspective, our way of viewing, our attitude towards whatever's taking place. And that's where our freedom lies, because so much of what happens to us is just not a matter of choice. It happens. But how we respond to it, and not only how we respond behaviorally, but how we view it, how we engage with it, how we conceptually designate it. A lot of freedom there. And that's where Lojong comes in. So this afternoon's meditation, of course, is on equanimity. And as I'm sure you all recall, Equanimity has both aspects to it. One, on the one hand, the feeling of equanimity, imperturbability, equipoise, composure is a very nice word. You might recall at the end of Lerap Lingba's short presentation, his one-page one total summary of his teachings on settling the mind in this natural state. He said, as you become very adept in this, you will always retain a sense of composure. Always that, composure. Well, that settling... So, that really is one of the major indicators of a mature Dharma practitioner. And I use this in the broadest sense of the term, whether it's Christian or Jewish, it's Buddhist, what have you. Or I'm, obviously, there are secular forms of Dharma as well. There's a lot of wisdom in the psychological tradition of developing overall mental balance, composure, resiliency, and so forth. So overall, whether we call it psychological maturation, spiritual maturation, this is clearly one of the indicators. Probably should be quite easily studied, I would think, in principle. And that is to, to encounter a wide variety of situations and not to be just static, dead, aloof, indifferent, unengaged, dissociated, but engaging with whatever's coming up, but with a sense of composure. I don't think that's a very airy-fairy notion, right? An emotional equilibrium, and then sometimes ha happy, sometimes sad, sometimes energetic, sometimes more passive, but that sense of composure. That certainly is an indication of you know, a spiritually mature person. And so in this regard, the, settle, the practice of settling the mind in its natural state can be especially effective. All, all the modes of shamatha will be helpful in this regard. But if we consider what are we attending to in the, in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, well, the space of the mind, that naturally gives rise to a sense of equanimity, not much happening, okay. But as soon as stuff happens, one of the, one of the recent words or labels for the mind by Marvin Minsky, is society of mind. The society of mind. He has his own spin on it. I, won't, I don't, think, I'm not, don't even think I know enough of his view to really give a, a good thumbnail sketch of it. But I like the, the mood of it, the kind of the ambience of it strikes the right note. Because when we consider, now we've all spent some time practicing settling the mind in its natural state. Well, you will have encountered a wide variety of beings cropping up there. Of course, we encounter a wide variety of beings usually, oh, four to six times every night in dreams. And there it is. We're meeting a society. We're meeting all kinds of different people, right? And as far as we know, they're really out there 
in a non-lucid dream, but at, in the waking state as we are tending to the events, the people, images, thoughts, and so forth and so on and c that comes up, it really is like going out into the world, isn't it? It's not exactly like sitting quietly in a room all by yourself because suddenly your immediate environment is heavily populated, right? Sometimes like Attila, Attila the Hun and his massive hordes are all ascending upon you and sometimes you know, much softer and so forth. But you all know, I think now you're all very familiar with the core instruction, whatever comes up, whether it's a memory, an image of the most awful event in your life, the worst person you've ever met, the worst historical situation you ever, you've ever heard of, the, recent, the, the most recent news, another bombing, another this, another that, and whatever comes up, whatever comes up, in terms of sheer equanimity, whatever comes up, attend to it without distraction. Don't flinch. Don't dissociate. Don't blink. Don't recoil. Don't lunge. Be there. Be there, yeah? Without distraction. Okay, this is, what, this is what reality is dishing up right now, okay? I'm not going to pretend that this isn't happening. But as I'm attending to whatever's coming up, I'm going to be right there. This is, this is it. This is reality right now. This is what's being dished up. I'm not going to be distracted. There it is. But while attending, I'm going to attend without grasping. I'll be totally present, but I'm going to be loose, heart open, mind open, eyes open, totally engaged, but without grasping. And there's the key to remain, maintaining the composure, the equilibrium, the looseness, the ease, the unafflicted state of mind, no matter what's coming up. Now, we're, we've been training in that, some of you, for many, many hours, all of you for some hours, even if, that's, if you just do it when we're here collectively. Well, the transition or the parallel from that, attending to the society of your own mind with all of its ups and downs, how, st how strong a parallel is that to leaving here and going back into your world, whatever your world is, and its ups and downs, and all of those people remembering and so forth, now they are, but where are they appearing? All these people that you encounter when you head on home, w the appearances, not the people, but where are the appearances? Where are the appearances arising? Nicola, in the substrate. They're appearing. That's the only access. As I look over at Susan, Susan, independent of me, if I die right now, she'll carry on. So she is certainly not a figment of my imagination. No question about that. Right, Susan? Yeah, yeah she agreed. <laughs> if she said, mm, then, I, then I'd have to do some state checks. Oh, maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe I am dreaming. <laughs> but no, she gave me her assurance, and she is actually over there. And so while Susan is an independent continuum from my own, I die, she doesn't die, she dies, I don't die, but nevertheless, all my impressions of Susan, how she looks and so forth, all my impressions, they are rising in the space of my mind with a major com contribution from her, for sure. But what I'm actually getting is a r appearances, visual appearances, auditory and so forth in the space of my mind, right? Because I never leap outside of the space of my mind. And so, all that I know of Susan and Carlos, Laura, and so forth and so on, all arising in the space of my mind. And however other people, let's, let's keep this people-centered just for the time being, however other people behave, however they treat us, be totally present, without distraction, but without the grasping. 
It is so revolutionary. It's so not so many other things. It's easy to dissociate. We all know how to do that. Bail out, ignore, forget it. I can't handle this. I'm out of here. We all know that. I'm so upset. How dare you treat me like this? Oh, I really love you, but you treat me this, this way. Give me more. I mean, we all know about attachment and craving. We all know about delusion and dissociation. But something is none of the above. I mean, totally present, without distraction, without grasping. That's like a, a miracle. And we can carry this out into the world. That's equanimity. That's vibrant, dynamic, vivid, full of life, equanimity. That that's, our, that's our ground, that's our starting place, right? But obviously, life calls, more, calls from us more. It calls, calls for more from us than mere equanimity, right? Sometimes equanimity is enough. But on other occasions, here we are not only observers, but we are agents, we are acting, and sometimes it really, reality calls for us to act with loving kindness, to act with compassion, to respond with empathetic joy, to get in there and be a player, you know, get in there and be a player. So we see between the settling the mind, the shamatha practice, and the four immeasurables, this, to my mind, is really an absolutely extraordinary matrix of practices that may be the first, among the first lojong in the history of Buddhism. Because the four immeasurables are clearly lojong. They got lojong written all over them. And settling the mind, even though that technique per se isn't found in the Pali Canon, it's utterly congruent with in the seen, let there be just the seen, the herd, just the herd, and so forth and so on. There it is, you know? So, as we move into the other realm of equanimity, so on the one hand, how important it is, no matter what comes up, keep your cool. Keep your cool. Stay loose. Relax. Be present. Sustain the composure. Don't flip out. Don't get all freaky on us. You know, hey, chill. Hey, it's, don't get upset. This is not being upset. This is composure. And then doing whatever needs to be done. Sometimes with a lot of energy, sometimes very gentle energy, whatever is needed. So that's one aspect of equanimity. And then the other aspect, of course, is this even-heartedness. We move into the Mahayana mode of this fourth immeasurable. Maybe all dwell in equanimity, free of attachment to those who are near, those we like, those who've treated as well, those who appear to us to be attractive, free of aversion to those who are far, those who appear to be unattractive, who hadn't treated as well, we just don't like them. Free of that, may we abide in equanimity. So, so much depth to that one. And I was thinking of Shantideva in this regard. It has a little bit to do with my my whacking Maria a little while back with the iPhone, you know, and then they're getting angry at the iPhone, or angry at the bicep, or angry at me, or then just angry at anger, you know, that whole sequence. Really, that's Shantideva. Shantideva. But coming right back to Shantideva in this marvelous chapter, it's, it's really kind of worth, worth a book all by itself, and the Dalai Lama gave a commentary on that chapter, and it became a book. Uh, the wisdom, the uh, patience chapter. The patience chapter. And this is something, just this one point that I'm about to share with you. Some of you, it's very old hand, so sorry, I'm just blathering on. But maybe it's not so bad to hear words of wisdom even from an unwise person. And here are words of wisdom from Shantideva. And that is when we encounter people who treat us badly, maybe it's just abusive, a bit sarcasm, disparagement, putting us down, many ways, many ways. In our society, it's mostly verbal. It, it does occasionally happen that 
A woman is sexually harassed, a man is beaten, and so forth. But it's not very common, I think, in the kind of the circles that we run in. Not very common, hopefully. But the sharp sword of the tongue, that's pretty common. That's pretty common, that we mistreat each other with the way we speak to each other face to face, behind each other's backs, and so forth. And when we're mistreated, then of course it's very hard, so hard, to feel any kind of affection. This person has just put you down, just abused you, showed condescension, contempt, just gone out of his way to find fault with you, make you feel inferior. That's just one example. Maybe it's manipulation, lying, deceit, and so forth. But in the case of just being put down, it's very difficult. There's nothing lovable about you. Your behavior isn't lovable. Your face isn't lovable. Your mental afflictions aren't lovable. You're simply designated, on, uh, you are just designated upon a whole bunch of unlovable things. <laughs> you know? Therefore, you're not unlovable. You're not, you're not lovable either. So sorry. There's just no part there that's lovable. So sorry. Next, you know, let's try another one. How are you doing? <laughs> but Shandadeva puts another twist on it. And he says, you know, the more that you really do enter into the flow of dharma, you really see a bottom line ethics, just not treating other people badly, being decent, so simple, but being decent, treating other people like human beings and not treating them like its. The more we just flow into that of ethics and then let alone if we adorn basic ethics with benevolence, altruism, kindness, then it's just, it's not invariably the case, but overall there is a general tendency that as we are treating people around us, loved ones, strangers, and different people, and so forth and so on, as we just get into the flow of treating other people with kindness, with courtesy, with you know, good motivation, then just overall, with some big spikes here and there, people tend to treat us better. You know? I mean, why, why would you want to mistreat this person? I mean, I think of a person like Matthew Ricard. Why, why would anybody want to ever mistreat him at all? He's just such a sweet man, Uni omnidirectional. He's like he's like a like a like a what's called that little irrigation thing, like a that waters the lawn. He goes and sprays water, a sprigate, a sprigate, you know, that just spray the waters the lawn. It goes in all directions. Much just like that. He just sprays kindness in all directions. Why would anybody want to do anything against him? I mean, so I imagine he doesn't really encounter much negativity. Because like, oh, don't do that to him, <laughs> you know? And there are a number of people like that. He's just a person that I know very well and admire a lot. So just overall, that's going to be the tendency. But then once in a while, I'm sure even Matthew, oh, in fact, I'm sure Matthew, he told me a story once. Somebody really, really hostile towards him a long time ago. So it's, it still happens. And, of course, this happens throughout history. I mean, sometimes really incredibly saintly people are treated terribly. Of course, that happens. But when it does happen, happens to you, maybe it's not so frequent, once in a while, then Shantideva then focused right in on that. Okay? He said, now, overall, people are treating you very nicely, you know, or at least neutral. You're showing kindness to them, so they want to show kindness to you. They don't want to hurt you. You're a nice person. But once in a while, you'll meet somebody really nasty, right? He said, oh, this person's so precious. <laughs> this person's so precious, right? Because, he, and, it's, and he's not just being saintly or just kind of being holy. He's being really very rational. And that is when there are people around us 
who show us affection, who are showing kindness, keep on bringing us dark chocolate, you know, <laughs> just watching the tummy grow and grow. How big can his tummy get this in eight weeks? Let's give him more chocolate and see. <laughs> you know, so when people are just showing you kindness all the time, then it's very, then it's, number one, feel easy to feel a bit of attachment to them. And of course, also affection. But then the attachment and affection go right together. Oh, you treated me so nicely. Oh, and, and you, see, you, you seem oh so lovable. So loving kindness comes out, but also attachment comes out. Oh, I like people to treat me like that. Don't go. Don't go. You know? So when people treat us very nicely, then loving kindness may indeed come out, but it's totally mixed like an alloy overall with attachment. And it's not so easy. It's not so easy to distinguish those two. So I say, when they say, oh, I love you, I love you so much. Yeah, but when you say that, how much is attachment and how much, how much is really genuine loving kindness? Because attachment's all about me, and loving kindness is all about you. So how much? Is it 100% loving kindness? 100% attachment? You know, I love you because you're so nice to me. You know? So it's difficult with those nice people. <laughs> but a stranger, if you feel loving kindness towards a stranger, and you see it, it's genuine. Then you think, well, I don't have to be, this isn't so subtle. That is, I don't have to worry about how much attachment, because I, I don't think I feel attachment for this person at all. But a genuine sense of caring, of affection, if you can feel affection, loving kindness for a stranger, when you come into the supermarket and there's a person there, you know, bagging, bagging your groceries and so forth, and if you just attend to that person as a person is bagging and you attend to them and just wish them well, and you see it's not just lip service, it's not some mechanical ritual. You really wish them well. Maybe even say a word of kindness, maybe just some friendly greeting. You go, wow. And then you walk away. That was real. There's no attachment there at all. Whatever affection I felt, that was simply, that was it. That was the real one. So that's really, that's good. Let alone if somebody treats you badly. If you can look through the unpleasant veneer, the unpleasant behavior, look through the unpleasant mental afflictions that are very likely operative, and you can look through all of that and see someone like yourself who's worthy of love, worthy of happiness, struggling with mental afflictions, wishing to be free of suffering, and look them right in the eye and wish them well. That's really pure. And so in terms of kind of like, a, like testing gold, testing gold, if you can love the person who treats you badly, love a person whose mental afflictions are pretty obvious, whose behavior sometimes is really unwholesome. And in the midst of that, see right through it like you have Superman eyes and you're just peering right through all these external unpleasant layers until you see someone like yourself, worthy of love, wishing to be loved, wishing to find happiness, and then offering them love and wishing them happiness. That's just solid gold. But you may need some unpleasant people for that. And then, of course, what Shantideva was really explicitly saying was if you really want to progress mightily with strength, with sisu, with courage and forbearance, with real might along the path to enlightenment, you cannot do that. It is impossible to do that without developing greater inner strength, fortitude, patience, forbearance. There just aren't any wimpy Arya Bodhisattvas. There are no Buddhas who have not developed the perfection of patience. But how do you develop the perfection of patience? 
by surrounding yourself with incredibly loving people who are giving you dark chocolate all the time. <laughs> but the only patience is, you know, just to monitor how much chocolate I each eat, eat each day. You know, <laughs> okay, I'll be patient. Not all of it today. You know, that's that's about it. That's pretty wimpy, right? Whereas if somebody treats us badly, and we can respond with equilibrium, we can respond with composure, without being upset, without anger, without malice and all of that. Take it and strive. First of all, with settling the mind, simply be present with them without distraction, without grasping. See what they're offering. Remain loose. Not be perturbed. That's how you develop the perfection of patience. Not just by surrounding yourself with really loving, gentle, affectionate people. So, as that litmus test, as that test of how are we really doing on the path, it's easy to fool ourselves if we're just surrounded in living in a place like this, surrounded by the Thai staff and then a whole bunch of loving people in the Sangha, it's easy to fool ourselves, to think that we have, we're, we're further along the path than we really are because we're not getting tested. Step out, get tested, and if you, if you meet the test, then you say, boy, that eight weeks in Phuket was not just a lot of good food. <laughs> you know, that really was transformative because... Ten weeks ago, I would have responded this way, because I remember I did it a thousand times. This would have been my response, but now, but now this was my response. And something took place in between. It was eight weeks of practicing dharma, and now my way of responding to this unpleasant situation, this unpleasant person, and so forth, is different. That's meaningful. That's meaningful. So as we practice the equanimity, and you bring the unpleasant person to mind, you do bring to mind. We don't fool ourselves that the person doesn't really have unpleasant behavior, doesn't really have mental afflictions, hasn't really treated us badly. Sometimes, yes, yes, yes. Behavior terrible, they've treated us badly, they do have intense mental afflictions. All of it's true. And none of those are lovable. There's no question about it. And we don't want to love them. I don't want to love them. I don't want to love mental afflictions or such behavior or harm. I don't want to love that. Why, why should I love that? But to see through all of that, oh, that's really powerful. So, yesterday I made two mistakes that I know of, <laughs> let alone all the other mistakes I don't know of. And one of them was, I, I, I miss, incorrectly quoted Geshe Gama Taige saying, if you can't see transformation in your mind from month to month, you should take your mind out and hit it with a rock. Uh, that's not quite what he said. It was, I think, well into or towards the end of his teaching on the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, Shantideva's text when he's well into it, maybe coming again, maybe towards the end, he said, now, this whole text is about transforming your mind. If you immerse yourself in the practice of the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life and you don't see any benefit for your mind practicing this text, then you should take your mind out and just hit it with a rock. Okay? That's what he did, did say, not every month. And I'm, I'm kind of relieved at that because I thought if I really have to beat my mind with a rock every month that I don't see progress, Oh, there's not going to be much of my mind left. <laughs> it would be, so, be a little pulp, <laughs> a beaten up mind. <laughs> so that was one mistake. He said, it was, I'm sure it was, Bodhicharvatara. If you practice that, it doesn't benefit. Then take your mind out and just beat it. And then I said the other one, I, that I had recently read an account of a, according to Buddhist tradition, there we are, with now definitely in Buddhist framework, of an animal that died and was reborn as a, as a, a disciple of the Buddha. I su strongly suspect there are many cases of that. But the story I was remembering wasn't that. And so I want to, even though I didn't tell you the story, so it wasn't really misinformation, 
I thought, well, get the story straight. And it turns out the story is very germane to equanimity, and I think I'll tell the story, and then we'll go to the practice. It's a pretty powerful story. It's from this commentary to the Dhammapada. And so it took place during the time of the Buddha. It didn't actually involve the Buddha himself, but it involved a, a gem polisher, a man whose, whose trade was to polish gems. He was married. His wife was very, very devout, very, very sincere, very dedicated, very devout Buddhist. And especially because of her, they hosted a monk in their home. They, they put him up. They took care of him. Uh, that was her, her expression of devotion. Not, not uncommon, but he lived with him. And she had great devotion for him, impeccable monk. And then her husband was an ordinary mundane person, worldly person, and he was a gem cutter. One day from the, from the king's palace, a courier was sent and he brought him a very precious jewel. I think it maybe, maybe was a, rose, a, a, a ruby, but a really precious jewel. And when it arrived, the gem cutter was cutting up some meat, so his hands, his hands were bloody. So this also pertains to the vegetarian question. Chopping up some meat. And his hands were bloody, but, so, but, so they delivered the jewel, and so he took the jewel right in his hands, this red ruby jewel, in his bloody hands, and he set it down on the table and finished chopping up meat and so forth. While he is distracted chopping up the meat, they had a pet crane, a bird, in the house. And the pet crane saw this ruby bloody and looked like a piece of meat. So the crane came over and swallowed like a $100,000 ruby. You know, didn't even taste good. <coughs> it didn't say that, but I'm kind of imagining a crane that just swallowed a ruby wouldn't be tasting. So then, of course, the gem cutter, he comes back and he sees the table. Gem's gone. And he knows this actually could be his life. I mean, because the king, this is the king that sent polish my jewel, polish my gem, and now he's got no gem. Well, this could be execution. They were not easy on thieves back then. So he freaks out. Understandably, he freaks out. He turns to his wife, and I don't remember all the details, but I'm, I won't make any big mistakes this time. But he checks around, okay, who, who took it? Who took it? And turns to the monk. The monk, by the way, was an arhat. He didn't know that. The wife had tremendous devotion for the monk, knowing he was a very pure soul. He'd been with him for a long time, always showed impeccable conduct. The gem cutter turns to the monk and said, you took the jewel. The monk said, I did not. But this, you can imagine, try to put, try to put your mind in, the, in, in that of the gem cutter. He's freaking out. Because he's thinking, really, he can have his head chopped off for this. And he, his wife wouldn't do it. And, he's, and he turns to the monk and said, you're lying. There's nobody else here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat it out of you. Confess, I'm going to beat it out of you. I did not. So he just started beating him. He absolutely mugged him. Beat him so blood was coming out of his mouth. I mean, he really beat him almost to death. As he did so, the blood was spurting out. And the crane came over. Blood. Oh. <laughs> and this man is so, so much in a fury because he's been beating. I mean, he's freaking out, thinking he's going to be killed, taking it out on the monk, blood gushing out from the monk, 
the crane comes over, the man, the gem cutter, is still so freaking out, he kicks the bird violently and kills it right on the spot. He just, pow, crushes the bird. The monk is almost dead. And he turns to the gem cutter and he says, is the bird dead? And the gem cutter said, yeah, he's dead. He said, cut him open. He cut him open, he finds the gem. And then the gem cutter freaks out. He said, oh. <laughs> and he turns to the monk and, you know, he's just groveling. He's so freaking out now with remorse. He said, I, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I had no idea. And the monk said, there's nothing to forgive. There's no fault. There's no fault on my part. There's no fault on your part. It was simply a misunderstanding. There's no fault. And then he died. He was beaten to death, but with no perturbation. Nothing. There's no fault. And, this, and the crane that just got killed was born as the gem cutter's, gem cutter's son. That was the actual story. So there is equanimity. And I've heard stories of that kind by monks that were tortured, sometimes tortured to death 50 years ago, 40 years ago. So it's sometimes helpful to just hear a story like that. Whether you take it literally or not, that's your business. That's your business. I don't, I'm not trying to make anybody believe anything. I do take that one literally. See, no reason not, no reason not to. Um, and just a whole story like that in mind. And Gyatranubha just told me other stories of monks that he knew. You know. And His Holiness also told stories. This very famous story of the monk who was many years, 17 years in concentration camp. The Dalai Lama asked him, did you ever feel anger, hatred? No, no, did you ever experience fear during these many years of being in concentration camp? And the person said, yeah, I did. Sometimes I did experience fear. Dalai Lama said, yeah, well, what were you afraid of? said, I was afraid I would lose my compassion for those who are torturing me. So hearing a story like that, hearing the story of this gem cutter, the monk Tisa was his name, T-I-S-S-A, who was beaten to death, but as he's dying, said, there's no fault. I did no fault. You, you did only acted out of misunderstanding. Just hearing that. Then when misfortune comes our way, other people treat us badly. And we start to... The mind turns, the, mind turned in, the heart turns into a fist. Then we can think, oh, but wait a minute. The heart was just beaten to death for no reason, no good reason. He had done nothing wrong, and he had equanimity. Maybe I can try to go in that direction. So, equanimity, multidimensional. Composure, but this even-heartedness attending out to all equally. So we'll practice it now with few words. We'll practice it in the mode of Tonglen. And let's have one session.
settle your body, speech, and mind in a state of equilibrium, poised, balanced between relaxation and vigilance. And in the space, the space of the mind immediately in front of you, bring to mind as vividly as possible, with or without imagery, depending on your visualizing ability, a person for whom you feel no particular attachment or aversion, quite neutral. Preferably someone you know quite well, but if not, then at least someone neutral. Attend closely. you know of any of the hopes and fears, the aspirations of this individual, attend to them as well.
see through the superficial veneer of indifference to a person like yourself. Breathe out with loving kindness. Breathe in with compassion. Imagine this person becoming free of suffering and finding the joy and satisfaction, the fulfillment that he or she seeks. Let the appearance of this person fade back into the space of your mind. To your left, attend closely to someone whom you hold dear, for whom you feel strong attachment. Allow the attachment to arise as you attend to the attractive qualities of this person. Then see through the attractive veneer to the person like yourself and practices before.
Allow the appearance of this person to fade back into the space of the mind. And to your right, bring to mind someone who has treated you badly. If you can think of such a person, or at least treats other people badly. And attend to the negative behavior, the mental afflictions behind them, that which arouses such aversion. See through the veneer in the story of the monk Tisa, when he responded to the person who had just beaten him almost to death, he said, this has occurred simply because of the ripening of karma, of past actions. And his, his mind remained composed without even a trace of anger. Consider however others treat you, however negatively on occasion. It is simply the ripening of past karma. But peer through the negative veneer to the person like yourself and practice as before.
and let this appearance too fade back into the space of the mind and let your attention rove. Bearing in mind the statement heard earlier that all sentient beings, all sentient beings are simply all the beings you encounter by way of the senses, by way of the mind. And practice Donglen for each one that comes to mind with an evenly open heart.
release all appearances. And let your awareness illuminate itself. Nassau. Quite a few today. Quite a few pieces of mail. But as, a, as engaging in this practice just now, it just really occurred to me that these practices, various practices of shamatha, the four immeasurables, they really are an endeavor to redefine normal. To redefine normal. It really should be normal to have a mind that is relaxed, stable, clear, Stuff comes up, we're aware of it, respond as needed, but not sucked up into it, carried away, not obsessive, not compulsive, not delusional. That should be normal. And as we engage with other sentient beings, that we treat each one as a human being. If it's a human being, a human being. A salamander with a broken leg, salamander with broken leg, whatever it is. But we just treat each other decently, with an open heart, as subject to subject, not as an I-it. That should be normal, isn't it? It's so easy to think, oh, it's so saintly, so saintly, but it, it should be just normal, I think. Anything less is really yucky. Not really worthy of, not worthy. Kind of too bad, yeah? So let us all be normal. Let's aspire to be marvelously normal. And then finding that normal is having good health, mental health, and good mental health entails naturally having bliss arise from your own mind. Hola, Sue. Personal note, good. I'll make sure I don't throw away. Oh yeah, going right for Dzogchen. Dzogchen view is all phenomena are appearances arising from the mind. Oh yeah, it's that easy. <laughs> That's one aspect of Dzogchen, sure. Chittamatra says, all appearances, all phenomena are appearances arising from the mind. Sitchamatra is the same as Dzogchen? Don't think so. But, but 
so far. So there's a lot more to it than that, but this is certainly, Dzogchen does include the affirmation of appearance, phenomena or appearances arising from the mind. What are the differences between, ah, here's mind only, I didn't even read that far. What are the differences from that of the view of the mind-only school and that all external phenomena are just projections of the mind? That's a very good question, um, but I'm going to set it aside for right now. Not that it's terribly difficult, but it would easily take 15 minutes and we have a half an hour. Okay? So, I can, I can give you something better. I'm not going to answer it. It's a very good question. It's a very good question, but there, there isn't time and we're, we're running out of time now. Uh, there's an, uh, one of the best Dharma books I've read in English is His Holiness the Dalai Lama's book, Mind in Ease and Comfort. Pretty sure that's the title. It's published by Wisdom, Wisdom Publications. And it's teachings he gave on Dzogchen in Lerapling about 10 years ago, in Lerapling in the south of, south of France. And it's a tour de force. It's just an extraordinary piece of scholarship because he covers the whole bandwidth, right from the Four Noble Truths right on up to Dzogchen. And then he, does, he revealed Dzogchen and his commentary to this classic text, Semyik Ngelso, by Longchen, Longchen Rapjamba. Uh, it's, um, I'm pretty sure that's the title. If you, if you should Amazon.com, Dalai Lama and Dzogchen, only two books will come up. This is one of them. And I think it's Mind in Comfort and Ease. If, it's that, if that's not it, it's very close to that. It's really marvelous. And then he just, he comes in like a surgeon and he just shows sharp distinctions um, across the whole bandwidth from the Four Noble Truths up to Dzogchen. It's really quite extraordinary. I don't think that many Buddhist teachers can do something like that. And he's one who can. So that's what I, that, that's my answer to that question. I'm going to pick little ones and see whether this is one, like those uh, Indians, I've seen, actually seen it, Indians who will write uh, like a whole poem on a grain of rice. There are the ones like the Bhagavad Gita on a grain of rice. Let's see. Okay, this is not too bad. Okay, gotcha. No, no problem. Yeah, that was just personal note. Let's looking always for the little ones. Oh, then the little ones, and they're <laughs> tricky, tricky, tricky. They fold out to big ones. Does the spirit of emergence, <laughs> it's called the spirit of emergency. Aruga, 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 get out of samsara now. It's sinking, it's sinking, get out. <laughs> I like to call it the spirit of emergence because the, the Tibetan is ngen jung. Jung means to emerge. Emergency is a different word. <laughs> spirit of emergency. The spirit of emergency is what happens when you see that they're running out of ice cream and they may not buy it anymore. That's a spirit of emergency. Is this something that arises due to a karmic momentum, or is it something that arises spontaneously due to volitional effort? Well, if it's spontaneously, then it doesn't arise to volitional effort, because volitional effort means not spontaneously. So you're really throwing me curveballs here. But I got the first one. It's not spirit of emergency. It's, so you didn't trick me up on that one. And now, no, it can't be volitional and spontaneous, because it's spontaneous or it's volitional, but not going to be both. Uh, but the question is still good. Right now, I don't feel my hair on fire, F from heart. <laughs> this, is, this is really a wonderful mixture of metaphors. This person has a hairy heart. <laughs> I don't feel my hair on my heart. I don't feel my hair on fire <laughs> in my heart. <laughs> I'm just having fun here. This is a perfectly good question. And it's not sighing, which may be just as well. Uh, so I, I do understand, though. It's just, it's just a wonderful use of words. That is, I don't have a heartfelt sense of having my hair on fire. That is a fantastic sense of emergency or urgency 
to achieve liberation. I understand that. Although I understand intellectually the importance of such kind of a renunciation, and that makes me feel guilty. Oh, that's good. That, that'll help a lot. That was my little note of irony. Uh, it makes me feel guilty, mundane, and that I'm wasting my life, and these feelings are not helpful to progress on the path. That's very true, yeah. So I know in the, in the, in the canon Pali, uh, or the, usually it's called the Pali canon, uh, some lay practitioners actually achieve stream entering. Yeah, quite a few. So nowadays, to what kind of realizations would a lay practitioner aspire? Perfect enlightenment. That's my answer, perfect enlightenment. Uh, on the path of Dzogchen, they don't ask. I mean, I've read quite a number of Dzogchen meditation manuals by now. Classics, Dujom Lingba, Ledap Lingba, Padmasambhava, Dujom Rinpoche, and, and so forth. And not one of them, not one Dzogchen manual does it say, now, are you a monk? If so, oh, okay, then read on. Are you a nun? It doesn't ask. Do you have ethics? Well, they, they ask that one. And they ask about you know, motivation and so forth. So I think the presence of the ordained Sangha in the world is enormously important. And I want to support it. I have great respect for it. Um, but certainly according to Mahayana, and actually there are a couple of cases in the Pali Canon of lay people achieving arhatship. Not many, but there are some. In the Mahayana, famous, one of the most famous sutras is the Vimala, Vimala, Kirti, Vimala Kirti Sutra. Bob Thurman did a very nice translation of the sutra, Robert Thurman. And this is a, a layman uh, who had, was an Arya Bodhisattva and brought up the whole issue of being a lay person and being able to really uh, progress along the path of the Bodhisattva to Buddhahood. It's really quite a classic and showing you don't need to be ordained, as, as valuable as that can be, that's not required, and certainly for the practice of Vajrayana, practice of Dzogchen. So, but the question is a very rich one, and, be, and it's easy for me to just kind of go off in tangent after tangent. Um, so, how does it arise? It, it, it can arise in different ways. So now I'll just, you know, quit having fun with the question. It's a perfectly good question. Um, and that is, in, ter there's, in terms of momentum or what predilections, tendencies, and so forth, there's two types that are spoken of classic Buddhist literature. Ketop, Jangtop. Ketop, Jangtop. And that which is achieved by birth. And that was achieved by training. Ketop, Jangtop. And so some people are born, little, baby, little babies, infants, little children, just showing tremendous generosity, kindness, sweetness to the kids around them. Other ones, stingy, grasping, selfish, crybabies, whining, angry, pissed off, and so forth. Some, so, so every parent knows that no child is ever born as a tabla, tabla rasa with no, with no personality, no character, just waiting for that to be imposed by the environment. Never happens. And so the Buddhist understanding here is not to discount genetic influence and so forth, because in fact, even though there's no word for genetic influence itself, it is clearly acknowledged. I could go on so many tangents here. But I just mentioned this. If you read some of the hagiographies or biographies of great lamas of the past, like Tsongkhapa and others, in many, not all, but many, they will say not only the previous incarnations of such and such a lama, some are tracing all the way back to the Buddha. Maybe they'll give 10 or 15 incarnations of a certain lama. And then, and then here he was born in such a lama. So they're saying, look, this is moment, mom, massive momentum. And whatever qualities, let's say Tsongkhapa or it's whoever it may be, Tsongkhapa is a great example, that the qualities that Tsongkhapa was born with and his immediate powerful predilection for dharma, enormous renunciation, bam, whole life was dharma, 
This is getop. This is coming from past life, enormous momentum. So getop means achieved at birth, that is prior to birth, momentum coming in from past lives. Okay? So there's that. <coughs> but in the, great, in the hagiographies of such great lamas, they not only, in many cases, not only say who was he in the past life, the preceding life, preceding life, and then to give very specific names. But in many cases, they'll also say, and this person's grandfather was this yogi, and his uncle was this great, this great scholar, and his great-grandfather was this great contemplative, and his, grand, and his grandmother was an extraordinary yogini. And showing, hey, they, they wouldn't mention that if it, if it doesn't, doesn't matter, if it's irrelevant. If all the influence on this, on this little baby Tsongkhaba, if all the influence were just from his own past lives, it doesn't, doesn't matter who his mom and dad were. Who cares? It's just 100% past life continuum coming in. But that's not indicated. So it's indicating when they're showing and pointing out, oh, great enlightened being here, or yogini, scholar, contemplative, and so forth and so on, clearly they're showing there's some, there's some real connection here, and that too would be an influence. So not with the detail of the scientific expertise of modern genetics, clearly it's not there, but it certainly does not count out biological influences, and in the Buddhist view, it's the confluence of biological influences you got from your parents and then from environment and so forth, and what you're bringing in. So that's getop. And then jangtop are those qualities, patience, achievement of shamatha, bodhicitta, whatever it may be, that comes that you didn't have at birth, they w did not come sheer out of past life momentum. You did it the old-fashioned way. In this lifetime, you, you really focused on practice, and you developed these qualities. And then you see, they weren't there at the age of 20, and there they are at the age of 30. And it was what, it, what was in between that really counted. Okay? So that's jangtop. Overall, the Buddhist tradition says, between these two influences, past life is bigger. It's got momentum, more momentum to it. We get habits from 10, 20, 30, 40 years of being alive. How about 10, 20, 30, 40 lifetimes? So the past life momentum is stronger at the same time, especially in Vajrayana. Especially in Vajrayana. And Miller Epo was really emphatic about this. When people started you know, adoring him for his tremendous enlightenment, he was almost ferocious. Maybe it's my projection, but he was very, very clear. Don't think that I achieved enlightenment in this lifetime because I was some great tuku, because I had some great, you know, not the case. This is the power of the practices in this lifetime. And he was practicing Vajrayana. So Vajrayana is, is so powerful, if it's practiced correctly, with all the prerequisites, everything authentic, can actually massively override even past life influences. And as I was proofreading this, uh, one of the texts that I translated from the Dzogchen tradition, I think it was Dujun Rinpoche, if not, it was Dujun Limbo, Dujun Limbo, one of the two. He said, and Dzogchen is a path for great sinners. Great sinners. People who have a lot of baggage. Because in this lifetime, you can cut through it. I thought, whew. <laughs> There's still something for me. Good. So, clearly, I mean, I, I do very resonate with this. So, so that's how it can come. Does it arise spontaneously? It can in some people. It does. It can be catalyzed by a life event, a tragedy, or near-death experience. Or it can be catalyzed by meeting absolutely splendid people, meeting a person like a Dingo Kinsid Rinpoche. He would transform people's lives just by being with them and just so incredibly inspiring them. You know. And so that can also... So it can be something utterly positive that just... So it's mo much more of a pull than a push, a pull towards rather than a push out of samsara. Misery, the death of a loved one, and so forth and so on, that can really push you out of samsara. That can be the emergence from, 
But Nian Jung, the spirit of emergence, is also a pull too. And so we try to strike a balance there. On the one hand, radical, total disillusionment with samsara, but balancing that with faith, confidence, enthusiasm, vigor, energy for liberation and balancing the two. If it's only one or the other, then I think it's obvious. So, not to feel guilty, it can come from a variety of ways. And um, so in the Galupa tradition, for example, I think perhaps because Tsongkhapa was just so awesomely brilliant. I mean, his intellect was so vast and so sharp, so powerful. And many of his followers were as well. That, and this was most of my training for the first 20 years. It's pretty clear the way to develop renunciation is to use, use your head, you know, Use your mind, use your intelligence, reflect deeply upon the first noble truth, the second noble truth, and really do it by thinking deeply. He was incredibly good at thinking deeply, and he taught other people how to think deeply. And that's absolutely one way to do it. You know? And I'm not sure that there's any other, anything that would be simply a substitute for that. But one can miss, one can think, well, that's the only way. That's the only way to develop renunciation. You can synthesize that to the four thoughts that turn the mind. Precious human rebirth, death, karma, suffering. And there's no question about it. Those really can turn the mind. But I've been watching people practice shamatha for quite a few years by now, especially when it's not just a weekend or a week, but three months or eight weeks. It's been interesting to see. Is that I've not been teaching, you know, spend hours and hours and hours meditating on the six, the six realms, the three kinds of suffering, the six types of suffering, and so forth. The, all the details of, of, of karma, the 12 links of dependent origination. But these are all very important, but it's not really what I've been emphasizing here. But it's more than one person I have sensed has developed really some significant sense of renunciation, spirit of emergence. From what? Not from deliberately thinking a whole lot, but by practicing shamatha, the four immeasurables, and finding right from your experience, just drawing from your own experience, a disillusionment with samsara. And why be disillusioned? This would be like teaching the first noble truth without the third and the fourth. I think we could be afraid of being disillusioned. I can easily imagine being afraid of being disillusioned with samsara. Like not wanting to. Give me, give me some Valium. Give me some ecstasy. Give me something. I don't, I don't want to be disillusioned. Because if I'm disillusioned with samsara, that's disillusioned with life. That's disillusioned with reality. And if there's no option, then I'm just miserable. And I'm just chronically depressed. And I just want to kill myself. Except for then the Buddha said, that doesn't help. Oh, crap. Now I want to ultimately kill myself, but I can't do it. Oh, yeah. You Buddhists really are pessimist. At least the materialists give us an out. You Buddhists, you're relentless. It's awful. You know. So just to be disillusioned with samsara is not enough. I think Satra was disillusioned with samsara. Camus, some of these other French existentialists, pretty intense. I didn't see they were going anywhere, but they were simply definitely coming from someplace. They knew what they didn't like. I never saw any clear direction, and now, hallelujah, this is where we're going from here. No, they had the first noble truth, but not much of the second, third, or fourth, as far as I can tell. So, continue to, lie, continue to live. Keep your eyes open. Cultivate. Explore your own inner resources. And find for yourself 
that there is, in fact, eudaimonia. And the more clearly you see that, the more completely you can allow yourself to be disillusioned with samsara. If you have only a, a, a suggestion, a whisper, a hope of genuine happiness, I don't think you'll let yourself be disillusioned with samsara. If you're out in the middle of the ocean and you've got a raft crawling with a raft that you're sitting on and this red-hot ants crawling all over it, well, that really stinks. But do you want to drown? If that's the only option, jump off the raft and then drown? Or are you going to just sit on the raft, raft and say, I hate this, but I don't want to drown? Whereas if there's a nice lifeboat right over, the, over, over yonder filled with tubs of ice cream, <laughs> then you can feel, man, am I disillusioned with this raft? <laughs> and these ants really suck. And I'm out of here, you know. Blah, 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 you know, you're off to ice cream land. And that's basically renunciation. <laughs> and don't feel guilty. We all have to go at our own pace, in our own way. Be happy. Oh, yeah. Oh, the answer to Darlene, uh, do I know what is going on in this regard? No. You're welcome. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, just, I just had to prove that sometimes I can give a short answer. Let the record show. Here's a great big one. I think there's probably more of a personal note. Yeah, private, good. That one I keep. So it looks like there's maybe one more. It's not personal note. So this, uh, the comment here from an unknown person, which is fine, uh, about er my earlier comments about mind and brain issue. Can you please just for just briefly, <laughs> yeah, sure, I can, absolutely. Uh, can, I summarize, uh, can, I s can I summarize, go deeply, and explain how the brain can influence the mind with alcohol, drugs, etc.? And just for my understanding, what you said this morning is that the mind influenced the brain with the experience, right? In your book, Mind and the Balance, can I research more about this topic? Um, sure, there are two questions here. That's the first one. So... First of all, I don't pretend that I have now a thorough understanding of exactly how the mind influences the brain and the brain influences the mind. I do not. That the brain influences the coarse mind is evident to really everybody, and I think it's been evident for a good 2,000 years. There were, there were notions that during the time of the Greeks that the brain was really very crucial as the base for the mind. So that's an old idea. And it doesn't take, an, you know, it doesn't take a genius if you have a a tiger come and bite you in the leg. You go, ow, and you can't walk as well. Bite you in the arm, ow, you can't lift stuff. Bite you in the head, duh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's different. <laughs> Nobody gets stupid by being bitten in the stomach or in the butt or the arm or the leg or the shoulder. But get bitten in the head or have a big rock fall on your head, then 
people notice. <laughs> Used to be bright, now not so much. <laughs> so this is not exactly breaking news that the brain, clearly something up there in the head, has to be related to multiple faculties, seeing, hearing, but also thinking, remembering, and so forth and so on. So uh, overall, the relationship between brain and mind, that there is a strong connection, quite clear, that there's a relationship between drugs, well, people have been smoking dope, dope taking alcohol for probably as long as fruit, has, fruit and grain have been fermenting, and as long as marijuana and so forth have been growing. Um, how does it happen? I'll give a Buddhist answer. That is, it, simply that it happens is clear to the scientific community, but the scientific community, if you ask exactly how is it that alcohol in the brain gives rise to a sense of being tipsy and wanting to sing, sing, sing songs and tell silly jokes and maybe showing really bad judgment, let alone that you can't hold your balance and so forth, but really the mental, mental effect. Being really silly or some people become a little bit aggressive, I think, when they get drunk, so people differ, right? But why would alcohol do that? Why did it affect one person this way? Well, the answer is don't know. That it happens, yes. And then they can, they can watch which parts of the brain are affected, and that part of the brain might be related to anger or other emotions and so forth, that's for sure. But yeah, once again, how do you go from chemicals to a subjective mental state? The answer is don't know. Just don't know. It's called the hard problem. And it is a hard problem, and it doesn't become easy just by saying it's easy. We don't know. That's the scientific fact. And then this ever so mysterious, in a way equally mysterious, but maybe weirder notion, because it's so, such, again, it's such a smart bomb. I mean, if you take alcohol, then some people become silly, some people become violent, some people just fall asleep. So the effect is different, right? People get drunk in different ways. But, you take it, but, but you're told, if you take this, your rash will go away. And you take the sugar tablet, thinking it's some great medicine, and your rash goes away. And there's no side effects, except your rash goes away. Now that's just weird, because you've got some semantic information. You take this and your rash will go away. That belief, that expectation and desire, confidence in the person who said it, that belief, which is utterly a subjective experience. Do you believe me or not? Yeah, I do. Only you know that. You can't, you can't measure that objectively. Do you believe or not? That belief triggers exactly the correct chemical electrochemical events in the brain that, that trigger exactly the right electrochemical events in the rest of the body to make a rash go away. That is weird. And I've looked at the literature because I have a whole chapter that deals with this fairly extensively in my next book from Columbia University Press. And I've, and I've corresponded with a world expert and another one who's written very, with some real insight into this. The, the second one is not a neuroscientist, He's more work in, in the social sciences. And he said, and he made a point I, I love to hear him say, and that is, just stop calling it a placebo effect. That's not what it is. It's a, oh, see if I remember what he said. It's a subjective. He, but he simply ignored, I can't remember exactly what he called it. It was a good name. It was, it was actually an accurate name. It was sub, subject expect, expectancy effect. Subject expectancy effect. Now that's accurate. It acknowledges that there's a subject, and then I expect something to happen. Now, that's accurate. Placebo effect is like looking at Carissa and saying, rhinoceros. You know. <laughs> there's just nothing about her that suggests rhinoceros. It was just exactly wrong, right? 
and so it's not a placebo effect. I've said that before. So total mystery, that's the real answer. And it's amazing how even the top-notch scientists are kind of like edging around that one. Like it's the elephant in the middle of the living room. And they say, and now we found the neurocorrelates here that are associated with, and we found the neurocorrelates here, and then we found the neurocorrelates here that are involved in the placebo effect. And what they never get around to is, it's a belief, stupid. It's expectation that is not chemicals. It's a subjective belief and an expect, and there's just no clue. There's not even a clue of how to get a clue. Where did, okay, where did, what is, does Buddhism have anything to contribute here, or do we just like to be sarcastic about other people who don't know? <laughs> we really do enjoy that, some of us. <laughs> So the Buddhist response here is prana, which is not physically measurable from outside, but it's absolutely measurable from the inside. I mean, a lot of you have now spoken about prana rising in your body, and even if I try to persuade you it doesn't exist, I don't think I could. Anymore than I can, if somebody comes in depressed and I say, I can't measure your depression objectively, therefore it doesn't exist. I don't think I could, I could persuade you you're not depressed either. But there is no objective measurement that can detect depression or even physical pain. That's a real clincher. Not even physical pain. There's no objective measure that can detect, measure, physical pain. So, all subjective experience is undetectable. Prana is also undetectable. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But it does have the caveat of being physical in a subtle fashion. And as I've mentioned before, it is this prana that is a type of energy that is physical but not material, that is of this, the one specific form of that energy, the prana, it's prana of the life force, located, based at the heart, the center of the heart, the heart chakra, let's say, that the prana is in direct interaction with the material body, cells, neurons, blood, tissue, bone. It's an, it, they're both physical, so they interface. They interface. Bearing in mind that the fact that it's not material, but it is physical, should not strike us as odd because it's already absolutely commonplace in modern physics. And it's not an esoteric idea. Some of the ideas of John Archibald Wheeler and Anton Sandler are esoteric, no question about it. This one is not esoteric. An electromagnetic field is not material. It has not a single atom in it. Nobody questions that, unless they just don't know what they're talking about. It is physical, and nobody questions that either. If I should send from my iPhone, if it were really working here, and I sent you a photo of my grandson, what am I sending from my iPhone? An electromagnetic field. Right? And that will influence the matter in your iPhone. If I send it from my iPhone to your iPhone, it will influence the matter in your iPhone. But that which, which is being transmitted from one iPhone to the other is not made of molecules. You can send it through empty space, an absolute vacuum. There's no matter transfer. There's transfer of something physical, but more importantly, there's a transfer of information. And information is not physical, and it's not material either. Not physical. And yet, it's carried by something physical. Electromagnetic waves sent from your laptop, your iPhone, or what have you. The information is not physical, but it's embedded in something that is physical, but which is not material. Quite interesting, isn't it? And so prana is physical, and prana carries information. 
The prana that departs from this lifetime and carries on to the next lifetime is physical, it's not material, and it carries information. Information like, oh, karma. Memories from past life. Hopes, fears, degree of compassion, wisdom, insight, accomplishment of shamatha or lack thereof. That's information. Carried by something physical, not material. And that physical, in the case of prana, is non-dual not some different substance than the consciousness which is immaterial and non-physical.